Welcome to today's extra special and short episode of Adapting in honor of the upcoming festival of Shavuot. I guess it depends on when you're listening to it, but I thought it'd be great to bring back one of our previous guests, Rabbi Yaffa Epstein, to talk about Shavuot and its meaning today and its meaning for Jewish educators in general. And as opposed to a regular interview, today's episode of Adapting is a bit of a study session with myself and Yaffa, learning some of the texts which are really relevant and integral to Har Sinai, Mount Sinai, and the giving of Torah, and also some of the other aspects of Shavuot. It's also a moment in time for all of us to express real gratitude to all the wonderful Jewish educators out there who do incredibly amazing work all year round, and especially for those of you who are reaching the end of your academic year. This is Adapting, the future of Jewish education, a podcast from the Jewish Education Project, where we explore the big questions, challenges, and successes that define Jewish education. I'm David Breifman. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our special adapting episode dedicated towards Shavuot. And I really wanted to have this conversation today with Rabbi Yaffa Epstein to talk about Shavuot and how we can acknowledge and celebrate Jewish educators on this special and important Chag holiday for the Jewish people. So, Yaffa, welcome to Adapting again today. Thank you so much. An honor to be here, as always. So let's talk a bit about Shavuot and what it means for the listeners in our audience who are less familiar with the holiday. Yes, the holiday of Shavuot. Literally, the word Shavuot means weeks, and that signifies the weeks from Passover to the holiday of Shavuot. It already culminates the counting from Passover to this holiday of seven weeks, wherein we sort of mark the shift from the barley harvest to the wheat harvest, which is brought as an offering on Shavuot. But the rabbis come along and they decide that since this is primarily an agricultural holiday in the Bible, they actually fill it with content that has to do with the receiving of the Torah. Not only do we have an agricultural shift from Passover to Shavuot, but we have a spiritual shift from leaving Egypt, becoming free people, and then entering into a covenant with God at Sinai and receiving the Torah. So it's interesting that we have this holiday which does both of these things all at once, both celebrating the harvest and also the receiving of the Torah. I think it's also, and this is for our Northern Hemisphere listeners, it's also interesting that Shavuot is towards the end of the academic year. So it sort of seems like a nice symbolic way to sort of like culminate the year of studying Torah for all of our students out there who follow an academic calendar. Yeah, absolutely. There's something really beautiful about ending together on this high of education and Torah learning and really celebrating what it means to have the power of knowledge and education. So I actually wanted to see if we could do a bit of a shift here and begin to transform Shavuot in some ways into a holiday which really honors Jewish educators out there and really celebrates the Torah. So I was hoping that you and I could do a bit of a study together about Torah, and we'll talk about what Torah Big T means in our context of this discussion. But teach me and let's learn a little bit together about how we can take this message into our textual discussions. I really love that, David. Torah with a big T. That's a beautiful uh, a beautiful image. So I was thinking about which text we should learn in honor of Shavuot. And there really are two texts. And I wasn't really sure which one we should we should talk about today. One describes sort of Moses's experience at the top of Mount Sinai and when he goes up to get the Torah from God. And the other one talks about what the experience of the people was. So what do you say, David? Which one should we start with, the people or Moses? Let's start with Moshe first and we'll go from there. Okay, phenomenal. So there's this gorgeous pasuk, this verse, which sort of describes how how the procedure went. So if we look at Exodus 19, there's this sort of, it's an interesting verse which talks about 
how the people are experiencing Sinai, and the, and the Torah tells us, So the blare of the shofar grew louder and louder. As Moses spoke, God answered with a voice. And the rabbis are sort of confused what it means that God answered Moses. I mean, shouldn't God be the one speaking? And they offer these sort of two interesting explanations for what it could mean that God answers. So let's look. Let's look together, David. This is in the Mechilta de Rabbi Ishmael, right? A midrash on the book of Exodus, a rabbinic explanation or interpretation of the book of Exodus. And they write on this verse, Moses spoke and the Lord answered him with a voice. So hang on. The question we're trying to answer here is, why is Moses responding to God rather than the other way around? Or The question is, why is God answering Moses? Right. Moses is speaking and God is answering. But shouldn't God be the one speaking? After all, God's saying the Ten Commandments, right? Like, why is Moses speaking and why is God answering? So the first answer that the rabbis give is that actually God waited for Moses to say back to God, okay, the people are ready for the next one. In other words, God would say a commandment and then he would check in with Moses and Moses would say, yep, we're ready. We're ready for the next one, God. And then God would say the next commandment. And and the Midrash seems to teach us that God would not say the next commandment until Moses let him know, or let, sorry, until Moses let God know that the people were ready. So what do you think that means, David, that God would not give the commandments until the people were ready? Well, firstly, I think I just love the fact that you just checked yourself on the gender pronoun for God. So like, kudos to you on doing that one in the spirit of time as well. Okay, so what we're trying to see here is that like, and I think this is interesting because many of us like, we learn something and before we fully learn it, we move on to the next thing that we want to teach, right? Like, Mm. we're just so quickly to get the next thing out that our brain is almost working faster faster than our mouth at many times. And here what we're saying is really God was intentional in giving Moses the time to actually be able to like, not only to take it in, but give Moses the benefit of then expressing it out as if to say, now you really got it. So only once he really was able to express something out loud was God sure that Moses fully got what it was that God was trying to transmit. How's that? I love that. I love that idea. It's really beautiful. We have to actually digest what we're learning, right? It's not just more, 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 more content, more cover more material, right? It's not just coverage. We actually want to make sure that we are understanding what we're learning. I think that's really beautiful, David. There's also something there about the articulation afterwards, which I think is really important. And that when you get someone to actually articulate something, it's a better knowledge for the teacher, yet the student really actually got it. And sometimes I find myself doing this when I run discussions, like I want to make sure everybody has a chance to speak, not because I want to just hear their voices, that in itself is important. But when everybody has a chance to speak, you know that everybody's internalized something and feels proud enough to share it back with the whole group as well, which I think is a pretty important educational message as well. Yeah, it's beautiful. Checking for understanding and being a part of it, right? Like feeling a part and having a stake in things. And I think what what's kind of great about that this text, based on what you're saying, David, is certainly God is not unaffected here. You know, like you could have imagined the whole experience of Sinai to just be one that is top down. But actually, God as educator in this text really cares <laughs> that God's students are actually involved in this process and are and are part of things. And I just love that image of the divine, especially since in the Bible, 
around Sinai. It's so, you know, fire and brimstone and it's such a top-down frightening experience. The rabbis reimagine it as this like beautiful educational moment where God really cares what's happening with the students. Do you think God is actually changed by this experience or by having Moses respond to to God like in terms of like the educator here is there something reciprocal going on because God's waiting for the response I think so yeah I think the text the idea of answering means that there is a connection you know that the the idea of God is in response means that yeah you have to wait you have to you have to be reactive and responsive to your students I definitely think that there's an impact here on the divine. There's a second part of the same Midrash, actually, where Rabbi Akiva, because this I think is also very fascinating. Rabbi Akiva comes back to Rabbi Eliezer and he says to him, duh, which I also just love that the rabbis sort of tell each other off. But he says to him, like, I knew that. That's obvious. What I think that this text means is that actually Moses, we know Moses is not a great speaker. So as Moses is speaking, right, Moshe Moshe Yedaber, right? As Moses is speaking, God responds means actually God notices the challenge for Moshe and supports him and supports Moshe in his own speech. And I think this is another sort of role of educator here is I notice where my students need help and I support them in that. But what I don't do is step in and take away the challenge for them. Interesting because, like, obviously, from my own prior knowledge, I remember now that Moses stammered or stuttered or was unable to fully be eloquent in the way that Moses presented. But when you're telling the story the first time, that God's just waiting for Moses to respond, like, that stammering was like irrelevant in that context because all of a sudden it was just a response and there was no question about how it was being responded to. And it's sort of interesting in this, in this, in this moment of transmission, like, I didn't necessarily forget that. But it was sort of like proof product that anybody can communicate regardless of any impediment that they might have. And that was irrelevant to me and my understanding of the text at the time. Mm, I love that. That's so beautiful, right? Anyone can participate and even and even can give over the most important thing. I mean, the Ten Commandments, there's nothing more important probably in terms of covenantal Judaism than the Ten Commandments. And it specifically is the person who maybe is challenged in that area of speech. God's like, yeah. To, to give it over. I also just love the empowerment, right? That God, God as the educator empowers God's messenger to now be the educator to the people. Like that two steps to me is really a beautiful, a beautiful image as well. Great. And your second text, let's go for it quickly. Okay. So the second text is another midrash, another uh, rabbinic interpretation and explanation on the idea of kol, of, of speech again. And here the Midrash asks, and this is in Exodus Rabbah 5.9, How did the voice of God at Sinai go forward to each and every Israelite according to their strength, right? Says the Midrash, everybody according to their strength, that actually the message at Sinai was unique to each person. The Midrash goes on then to then discuss it. You know, this group got it according to their strength and this group according to their strength. And even the children and even Moshe, even Moshe only received the Torah according to Moshe's strength. But I think there's this beautiful idea that we sort of had a tailor-made message that we could hear and understand. And that's what Sinai meant for every single individual Jew. 
I think it's also interesting that the word is strength and not weakness in terms of often we talk in educational language about we have to meet everybody according to their, their challenges or what they actually that they need in terms of a deficit. But here the language is kohod, the strength, which is like actually build towards someone's real strengths and their real attributes so that they're best able to interpret what's taking place. I think that's really, that's really powerful. I think also there's something interesting about strength here that it's like endurance in a certain way. And maybe even, and I'm curious to hear what you say about what you think about this, David, like resilience, like what is the resilience that we need our students to have in order to hear the message? So on the one hand, as the educator, we have to tailor our message so that people can hear it. We have to make sure we're speaking a language that our students can hear. But our students also somewhat have a responsibility to build, you know, the resilience muscles to strengthen themselves, to be able to receive new messages and information. So I think it's almost a two-way street in that way. I'm interested here because it's like, are we saying that students need to build towards their strength or they need to develop their weaknesses? I think it's a bit of both as well, right? Like if I'm a kinesthetic learner, then yeah, sure, I can keep playing towards my movement aspect of the way I'm going to interpret things. But you're also saying here, and it wouldn't hurt you also to try and cultivate some other aspects of your, of your overall ability to learn as well. Yeah, I love that. I really love that idea. And I love the idea that perhaps the experience of Sinai, which was so multi-vocal and so experiential, like maybe there is a beautiful message there, but it's beyond actually just maybe our intellect or one aspect of our learning capacity that we really have to push ourselves. I love that. So... All this talk about Torah on, on Shavuot is really like really important and really powerful. And it reminds me back to my gap year abroad when I was actually elevated above a building receiving the commandments as I was replicating the, the experience of the delivering of the, of the commandments on Shavuot. But I then went on to, to live that same year on kibbutz for the rest of Shavuot. And Torah didn't even get a mention on the kibbutz where I was at. And there was this whole other celebration and I wasn't sure what to expect. And before I knew it, I'm sitting there in the audience and this becomes a pageant of all of the kibbutznikim bringing out their first fruit. And then they brought out all of the baby lambs and the baby sheep and the baby cows that were born in that first year. And then the next thing I knew, they were bringing up on stage all of the babies that had been born in that first year to present them to the whole kibbutz community. And it was really an offering of like gratitude. Like these are the first products that we're bringing to all of you during the coming year. And this, this notion of Bikurim at that moment meant something very different to me than what I'd experienced in terms of textual learning about the bringing of the first fruits. And I'm wondering, could you explain to the audience a bit about this concept of Bikurim, fresh fruits, and what it is that we're presenting to our community at this point in time? Sure. So Bikurim are actually the first fruits of our fields. And it's a specific commandment. When we come into the land of Israel, we are commanded to bring the first fruits. And interestingly, when we brought those first fruits to the temple, the person who was bringing them would make a declaration. And part of that declaration connected this day of bringing the first fruits back to us being slaves in the land of Egypt and the whole process of coming into the land. And now as free people with our own land and our own produce, we really bring this offering to the temple to show our gratitude and our appreciation for the incredible bounty that we are holding. We had this conversation a while back with one of our previous guests, Yakir Manella from was then Hazon and now Arama, about the resonance of agricultural holidays in today's world. I'm wondering if you can make any comment about like 
these things seems like so far away and distant and that the fact that they were agricultural and now we're no longer just an agricultural people although there are so many people returning to agriculture like how do we as Jews today make sense of agricultural the agricultural calendar which we've inherited yeah it's interesting I think there's a move back to trying to connect to the natural phenomenon that are happening it's and this, David, is where the, the, what hemisphere you're in really does matter, right? But this idea that sort of, in addition to a spiritual calendar, there's actually a physical reality that matches, I think really allows different people to connect. Some people really connect to the earth. Some people really connect to the agricultural aspects. And what does it mean to have a way in? I'll just say that, you know, when you actually get to live parts of the agricultural pieces. So if you ever, I want, well, maybe I shouldn't say this, I don't know. But I actually, speaking of Yakir, I actually had the opportunity to spend a summer at Kayam Farm and we actually harvested wheat. And it was such an experience of, oh my goodness, I suddenly came to understand all of these rules and all of these halachot, these laws about agriculture that we've learned intellectually but never experienced. So there's something really amazing. If you can, like you said, when you went to the kibbutz and experienced the Bikurim, if one can try to you know, connect to that element, it really brings alive the Bible and, and even halacha, Jewish law, um, that has fundamental pieces of it that are agricultural. Maybe I'm beginning to answer my own question about the connection between the giving of Torah and the Bikurim on Shavuot as symbols of Shavuot in terms of what does it mean as a Jew today to be bringing together Lemala and Lemata, like from the Shema, from the skies and from the ground um, in order to make a complete a complete self, a complete you, having these two pieces of you, the reality of your day-to-day life and also the spiritual from above being able to come together on a holiday like Shavuot. Maybe that's really what it's all about. Beautiful. Love that. So, Yafa, what's your best bet in trying to bring these two themes of Shavuot together? Are they two distinct themes? Or if you were to try and link the giving of Torah and the delivering of the first fruits together, what would be your like synthesis of those two key components of Shavuot? Or can it be done? That's gorgeous. You're asking to like, we're going to create a Midrash on the spot, David? Why not? You know, it's interesting. I didn't think about that. Um, Yeah, I think Perhaps if we were going to tie together what it means to receive the Torah and to recognize our bounty, for me, what's at the heart of that is gratitude, is really appreciating what we are holding, both in terms of our agricultural, our physical bounty and our spiritual bounty. What does it mean to be grateful for this incredible intellectual and spiritual inheritance that we've received? And that we have an opportunity to delve into and go deeper into our texts and into our tradition and bring our own voices to it, really. And I think it's this message of gratitude that I want to try and bring us together with now and to see how we can treat Shavuot as a a real hug of gratitude and thanks. And particularly here, I want us to think of this as a way, an opportunity, a moment in time where we can all go and thank the Jewish educators who, again, I know Northern Hemisphere centric here, are coming towards the end of their academic year. All of the time they've spent with their students transmitting Torah helping them all to bring their best selves to their classrooms, to their learning. Of course, there are many of you about to go out onto summer camp. And of course, my friends down under, you're just midway through the winter and you're going to get through the second half of your year as well. But 
I think if we can start seeing Shavuot in this context, I think we can really elevate it to a to a hug which has even more prominence for so many people today. And I really want to use this opportunity to really to be grateful and to show gratitude to all of the educators out there as well. And usually we ask our guests on adapting to thank and pay tribute to an educator who's made an impact on, on their life. Yaffa, as a previous guest, has already done so. But Yaffa, are you able to now offer a blessing or a, a moment of gratitude for all of the Jewish educators out there who are transforming the lives of so many people all of the time? Yes, I definitely want to join you, David, in thanking all of the incredible Jewish educators out there who work so hard. They're incredibly dedicated and they are the one that we really owe them so much gratitude. They bring out the individual voices of every child. They see where our students need support. They encourage and build resilience in our students to pick up the tradition and pick up the mantle of Jewish learning. And they really help us offer up our own fruits of knowledge and learning. So yes, much gratitude to all of the incredible educators out there. We we really owe it all to you. So thanks, Yaffa, for joining me today. I really wanted to have this episode just a bit of a prelude to Shavuot. Hopefully you're listening to this, if it's not just a few days before, then maybe immediately after, but really to signify Shavuot as a day when we really can express so much gratitude for all that we have received and all that we continue to give. So Yaffa, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. Thank you so much. A real honor to be here. Today's episode of Adapting was produced by Dina Nussenbaum and Miranda Lapidas. The show's executive producers are myself, Karen Cummins, and Nessa Lieben. And our show, as always, is engineered and edited by Nathan J. Vaughan of NJB Media. If you have enjoyed Adapting this season, please leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and even better still, share the episode and others with friends. To learn more about the Jewish Education Project, please visit us at jewishedproject.org. There you can learn more about our mission, history, and staff. And as always, we are a proud partner of UJA Federation of New York. And if you're listening to this episode before, Shavuot this year. Chag Sameach and thank you for listening today.